This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Te Papa Hauora Christchurch Health Precinct holds its We're Talking Hauora Research Talks annually. It's an opportunity to showcase health researchers from Canterbury and their inspiring work to improve health outcomes for our community. This year, the evening of talks featured eight researchers discussing a range of topics across many health disciplines. This episode features Dr. Jessica Fitzjohn talking about accessible automated breast screening, followed by Dr. Kate Prendergast, talking about how cities can help our young people live well and thrive. Koto, everyone. So first of all, I just want to ask for a show of hands. How many people know someone who's been affected by breast cancer? So unfortunately, it's far too common in New Zealand, and one in nine women will be diagnosed at some stage in their lifetime. Now, early detection saves lives. So mammography is currently the only approved large-scale breast cancer screening device. Yet it still has some issues which kind of contribute towards its inequity. First of all, the success is dependent on the experience of radiologists, and there can be issue in diagnosing in dense breast tissue. So you can see from this image here, on the left, you can see a small tumour diagnosed in a non-dense breast. And on the right, you can see a large tumour, which is really masked by the presence of dense breast tissue. So if we imagine trying to diagnose the small tumour in the dense breast, it would be near impossible to find. And these are the kind of challenges that radiologists are facing daily. Now, about 50% of women have dense breast tissue, but over 80% of women under 45. So that's one reason why mammography screening is not recommended for younger women. Another reason is radiation risk. So compounding radiation to the chest area over time can actually contribute to breast cancer if started too young. Mammography is also high cost and requires excessive infrastructure. So because it needs x-ray shielding rooms, it's kind of confined to the main centres. So women who live in smaller communities or, you know, rurally, it might not be feasible for them to travel to get a mammogram. So you can see there's a bit of an access barrier as well. Breast compression, as many of you will know, um, can be uncomfortable and also deters a lot of women from getting their breast screened. Now, in New Zealand, breast screening participation is about 65 to 70%. So that means that a third of women who are eligible are not actually getting screened. And um, in the RNZ today, they even said that um, 10, 10 women in Wellington were, um, have worse outcomes basically because of the backlog of mammography. So New Zealand doesn't really have the capacity to cope with 100% screening participation either. I just want to talk around some of the common misconceptions with um, breast cancer incidents in women under 45. So about 13% of breast cancer in New Zealand occurs in women under 45. This is about 18% worldwide. It's still the number one cancer for women under 45, and they're 30% more likely to die than women in the screened age group. But they still have zero publicly funded screens. So in 2004, the screening um, age range changed from starting at 50 to starting at 45. Now, these plots show the years after that screening age change, and they show the incidence of large tumours. So on the left is tumours over two centimetres, and on the right is tumours over five centimetres for different age groups. Now, what's really interesting is this big spike at age 45. 
So basically what that means is that more women from 45 to 50 are being diagnosed with large tumours than any other age group. So what's that showing is that the incidence is likely much higher than 13%. Because if a woman's diagnosed with a 5-centimetre tumour or even a 2-centimetre tumour, chances are it's, it's been growing for some time. So basically because of a lack of screening in the younger ages, you know, if, they get, if women who are younger contract breast cancer, they don't know that they have it until they either feel a lump or when they enter the screening age at 45 and get the opportunity to be diagnosed. So how can we screen women under 45 if they're not recommended for mammography? So throughout my PhD, I was developing the diagnostic capabilities of a new breast cancer screening solution. So as you can see here, um, a woman lies face down on the machine. This small white thing in the middle here is called an actuator. And basically that vibrates up and down plus or minus a couple of millimetres and vibrates the breast as it lies on it. We have surrounding cameras that take photos of that surface motion. And then basically all that kind of surface motion data gets passed through algorithms that we've been developing to automatically diagnose breast cancer. So without getting too technical, the best way to describe it is this. Basically, we know that tumours are four to ten times stiffer than healthy tissue. We also know from earthquake engineering that surface motion, or say the motion of buildings in an earthquake, is a reflection of the underlying ground properties. So therefore, we can, use, we can analyse the surface motion of the breast to find regions of high stiffness, or in other words, tumours. So hopefully this all sounds fairly appealing, but how well does it actually work? So I just want to introduce you guys to a couple of terms. So um, sensitivity is the ability to diagnose women who have cancer, and specificity is the ability of a technology to di correctly diagnose healthy women. So as you can see in mammography, there's a huge variation in the accuracy, you know, 27 to 97%, 65 to 99%. What I found is that when you compared it to another um, breast screening technology, such as MRI or ultrasound, we were getting average about 60 and 80% for sensitivity and specificity. So that seems a lot lower than what people think. What kind of happens is potentially one screen may not have a really high accuracy, but regular frequent screening over time is still more likely to find cancer before it's developed into symptoms, so it's still life-saving. Now, when we were developing the diagnostic algorithms for our technology, um, we ran a clinical trial at Canterbury Breast Care. So we recruited women who'd been diagnosed with cancer, and we just had a small clinical cohort at the start. So we had 28 breasts, half with cancer. And we found we were able to diagnose our two smallest tumours, which were seven millimetres. So just to put that in perspective, the average tumour size diagnosed by mammography is about 12 to 14 millimetres. So these are really small tumours. We also got sensitivity 92 to 100% and specificity 80 to 86%. So this is really exciting diagnostic results, albeit with quite a small um, clinical cohort. So we're trying to kind of raise money so that we can run another clinical trial and further prove the technology. But as you can see, this image on the right here is kind of a, I guess, a representation of one of the algorithm's results. And it shows that there's potential for a much higher diagnostic resolution than radiologists are currently using in mammography. So by using this high contrast and stiffness, we could actually improve the accuracy of breast screening. Plus, completely automated algorithms means that you're reducing human error and radiologist bias. So, to conclude, the technology is portable, 
radiation-free, compression-free, and all the diagnosis is completely automated, so you don't need any skilled personnel to facilitate or interpret the diagnostic images. Um, it could improve breast screening equity by providing an alternative for women under 45 or women adverse to pain and radiation. It could increase access to breast screening by having the technology, you know, in local GP clinics or more accessible areas, providing pop-up screening initiatives to rural communities. And finally, it could help in developing countries where, you know, infrastructure and skilled personnel are sometimes lacking. So as my final spiel, please go out and get your mammograms. It's really important, and it's important you encourage your friends and family to do the same, and it's a privilege for us here in New Zealand. But we need to remember that mammography is not an option for all women, and it's important to support new technologies that could provide a solution and open up the option of breast screening to all women in Aotearoa and around the world. Thanks. Tina Koto, thank you. It's a privilege to be here today. And I'm really excited to share insights into how cities can help our young people to live well and thrive. So to set the context for my talk, I thought I'd ask you to all begin by imagining with me. Imagine it's now the year 2050. The rates of young people living in cities have steadily risen so that now seven in 10 of the world's youth will call a city home. Imagine what those young people would think about the decisions made way back in the 2020s. Were they decisions that curb the trajectory of carbon and greenhouse gas emissions, especially those attributed to cities? Were they decisions that lessened what were once widening gaps and inequalities? And are they decisions that have enhanced the well-being of young people and their communities? Those are all aspirations that really drive my research interests because the reality is the decisions that we make today will impact the well-being of future generations. As a research team, we're interested in understanding how to build climate-resilient cities, but through a youth lens, where our overarching question is how can cities support young people to live well, but to live well in sustainable, low-carbon ways? So I'm in a really privileged position of being part of an international group of researchers who are based in seven cities. And you can see the, my wonderful colleagues in the photo in the seven cities um, where they are all located. So together we've been working on a project called Cycles, which is led by UC Professor Bronwyn Hayward and is funded by an ESRC grant um, to the Centre of for Understanding Sustainable Prosperity, um, which is led by Professor Tim Jackson in the UK. So in each of our cities, we have been running focus group discussions and a survey to look at young people's wellbeing and their lifestyles, um, particularly in high energy, high consumption domains. So those include things like young people's transportation, what they eat, um, how they heat and cool their homes, and also their lifestyle activities such as schooling and leisure. So we've been using the data generated from that to try and understand what young people's wellbeing aspirations are, and then in turn trying to identify the conditions that cities can support those aspirations. So what have we found? 
Well, first, if we have a look at young people's wellbeing aspirations, in our survey, we asked young people across the seven cities to identify the top five things that they considered most important for a good life. On the graph, you can see on the left-hand side um, the 17 items that young people were given a choice from. The bars represent the proportion of young people that selected each of the items in their top five. So the take-home message is that young people really value good relationships with family and friends. They value being healthy, having access to a good education, having enough money for the basics, and feeling safe. So we wanted to start to unpack these findings in a bit more of a nuanced way. To also identify the conditions that cities can um, support young people to live low-carbon lifestyles. So to do that, we used our focus group discussion data. And tonight, I'm going to share three key insights. So like our survey, we found that young people highly value their positive relationships with family and friends. We also saw that, in turn, these relationships really influence where, when, how, and whom young people consume with our second key insight was that young people really appreciate access to safe, equitable places in these cities that support their individual well-being, where they can gather with family and friends, and where they can connect with their communities as well. So those included places like libraries, sport and recreation facilities, playgrounds, parks and green spaces. But access to these spaces were fought for many young people. So some young women told us that they felt unsafe in these public spaces. Young people also told us when they gather, particularly with groups of their peers, that they are made to feel unwelcome in these spaces. Young people also told us that um, these spaces were unequally dis distributed in their cities, um, telling us, these are their words, that the richer or nicer or high-income parts of their cities have better access to the places that support their well-being. This often meant that young people were driven to high-consumption, high-energy commercialised spaces like shopping malls and fast-food outlets together with their peers. Our third key insight was that young people want safe, accessible and affordable transport so that they can autonomously move around the cities to the people and places that support their well-being. But again, there were common challenges. We heard from young people in Christchurch how public transport can be unaffordable for many and also unreliable. We also heard about um, young women feeling unsafe walking in certain suburbs within our city. So this means that young people often rely on their parents or others to chauffeur them to the places that they want to go. And so you can see how that um, helps to lock in a high carbon, high emissions lifestyle. So what does all this mean? Well, initial insights from our research suggest that there is an important role for city councils to support youth wellbeing in low carbon ways by um, focusing on 
the conditions that support young people's relationships. So this includes things like investing in social spaces where young people can engage in those low emissions activities. It means addressing inequalities in the distribution and access to places that matter. And it means prioritising accessible, affordable and safe transport so that young people can autonomously get to the people and places that support their wellbeing. So as a research team, we've been trying to influence policy and decisions in our local um, cities as part of our wider work programmes. But it's also up to us as an urban community to advocate for cities that support our young being now, our youth, youth wellbeing now, but also into the future. And so I'm going to finish where I started by asking you all to imagine what the youth of 2050 will think about the choices that we've been making today. Thank you. been listening to We're Talking Haora, a series of research talks given by researchers from Te Papa Haora Christchurch Health Precinct. <laughs>